Take a network break. Welcome to our weekly podcast with commentary and analysis on networking and IT news. We've got stories today on Google Fiber, a new root store in Chrome, some space networking, and more. We're sponsored today by IP Fabric, the industry leader in network assurance. IP Fabric wants to show you what it can do for your network operations. Get a free demo from an IP Fabric solutions engineer who's been on the same 2 a.m. phone calls as you trying to troubleshoot a network issue. Go to ipfabric.io slash packet pushers demo. Find out how IP Fabric can help you solve network problems faster. That's ipfabric.io slash packet pushers demo. Uh, on the Tech Bytes podcast today, sponsored by Juniper Networks, we dive into Juniper's SD-WAN driven by Mist AI. Juniper's SD-WAN is dramatically different than those that use IPsec, TLS, or other tunneling protocols because it can handle a wider range of designs while incurring less state in the network devices. We talk about how Juniper SD-WAN works and what it means for how customers can design their WANs. Uh, one last thing, we're pleased to announce the official debut of Kubernetes Unpacked. This is the newest podcast in the Packet Pushers Network. Kubernetes Unpacked looks at all things Kubernetes, from how the orchestration platform works to the ecosystem of tools and services developing around it and more. You can find it at packetpushers.net slash series slash Kubernetes unpacked. Uh, we've got 10 episodes up so far and more to come. All right, let's dive into the news. Google is teasing the expansion of multi-gigabit fiber to the home via its Google Fiber division. Google Fiber already offers up to two gig down and one gig up offerings in certain locations in the US. Uh, there's now a blog post from Google Fiber division saying, in the coming months, we'll have announcements to dramatically expand our multi-gigabit tiers. And Google doesn't really specify what those tiers might be, but the post site's a home test site that's getting 20 gig download speeds. Uh, and Google Fiber says its goal is 100 gig symmetrical internet service to the home. Yeah, a little bit of stunt networking there. You know, when you can get 20 gigs to a single house and you're a telco, not bad, is it? Uh, sure. It makes a good headline. I think it's, it's probably some sort of pond passive optical sort of technology that Google's been working on. And they're saying up to 20 gig, I think, is a more realistic and other people will get multi gigabit, as in more than two down, one up sort of thing mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. in, in the local loop. I, I had a bit of a think about this and thought like, oh, uh, you know, like technology 20 gigs to the home. Is one thing, but what's the what's the background here? Where's the money? Yeah, follow the money. And I ended up. Uh, this is a demonstration that from Google saying to telcos, you can deploy more bandwidth in the local loop. It doesn't cost a lot if you just deploy new technology, have new ideas, do new things. This is literally snubbing your nose at the telcos and going like, why aren't you deploying twenty gigabit gigabit to the home? <laughs> Does that make sense? It does, yes. <laughs> it's 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 like Google wants more bandwidth for its services. They know that if they deliver ads 10 milliseconds faster, they get delivered 20% more ads. Or some there's some actual mechanic there where every millisecond results in much higher delivery of ads and therefore and also click-throughs as well and online shopping and all that sort of stuff that Google wants to be a part of and take us take a share of. And so they want a faster internet. We know that Facebook does the same thing with its technology division where it's out there creating you know, the the telecom infrastructure project, trying to convince telcos to stop sandbagging the whole process. But I think interestingly here, Google's actually saying politically to the, tel you know, it wants to, or increasingly what I'm seeing is that Google wants to get involved in politics. It wants to sit down in front of the US government or the UK government or the European governments and say, why aren't the telcos doing more? We're doing the best we can. Yes, we're, you know, we want privacy, but that's our business. And business is business and you can't change business, you know, a leopard can't change its spots, but you know the ads are good for the good for the internet. They're good for the world. You know that's its pitch. And then what it's saying is, and telcos are saying they want this and that, and we're saying like if they only pulled their finger out, they could do better. And then they go and demonstrate it. It's real cheeky, right? So you're saying Google doesn't actually necessarily mean to compete in this place. They're just doing this as a way to get telcos to actually improve their infrastructure, or could, or do you think that Google is legitimately wanting to become a uh, uh, provide fiber to the home as a, an ISP that it's actually hoping to build out this business. No, I, I think Google fiber is literally a, a project that proves that telcos could do better and it's worth the money. <laughs> I, I imagine, you know, Google's got so much money and, and has so many projects that it's fluffing around with that, you know, one that just has a political thing where Google gets involved in telco conversations and says, you're not doing enough because you're a bunch of clowns and then goes out and proves it actually works. Right. Right. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I wonder about this because, you know, the U.S. desperately needs more broadband competition. So I'm rooting for Google Fiber because I'd love to see more competition come out. But pulling fiber is expensive. It requires a lot of groundwork. Uh, it also requires, as you say, a lot of politics. There's a lot of local municipalities where you have to get rights of way on polls mm -hmm. and such. So it's a serious logistical undertaking, a political undertaking. There's a lot of it is. pressing but the flesh Google's and reaching out to that people. It can be done. Right. right. It's, it's but I'm wondering, there. is this, I, I, have, I guess I have a hard time thinking, well... 
<laughs> it's two ways about yeah. Google. On the one hand, it's yeah. a, a real big undertaking for a company. Uh, and the other hand is that, and maybe Google serious because, you know, more internet users is better for Google. But at the same time, we mm. know that Google has a track record of pulling out of projects once it gets bored or, you know, isn't seeing instant yeah. results. And which is why I don't see this as a serious business. If right. Google wanted to be a telco, it'd be a telco and it would be doubling down. So this, this project that's its core business isn't to be a telco. It's to, to sell you know, ads. stunting <laughs> to annoy telco. Yeah. Right. It's to sell ads ultimately in the long run. It's viable. It's probably, you know, covering its costs. So it's not a dead loss like most of the other things that we'll, you know, we'll even talk about a few more in the next few minutes. But it also puts Google into the political conversation, which I think increasingly is something that it wants to do. It wants to be a part of more and more of the conversations that happen at the political level to maintain its dominance. It wants to influence politicians when the telcos are talking or when, you know, when you're talking about privacy, Google wants to be at the table making sure that they've got a voice there and they're influencing the debate in a direction that they want it to go. Uh, that's an interesting uh, perspective that, that, that does, I mean, but I, I also wonder about that because there are easier ways to get a seat at the table. One is, which is just to donate lots mm. of money to politicians and presto, a seat opens up for you. Yeah. So, but I, I guess, you know, but I, yeah, I take your point as a proof of concept. Yeah. They are saying you, you can do better ISPs. So here's a, here's a little kick in the seat. Yeah. I think tech generally doesn't like to do the lobbying thing. So, you know, instead of buying off a lot of in lobbyists and then buying off politicians with dark money, especially in the U S that doesn't necessarily work in terms of bringing people on your side. And I think Google knows this is a much more credible way to go forward, or at least I perceive it as that. Maybe I'm wrong. Let me know in the follow-up. Head on over to packetpushes.net slash FU and tell me what you think about it. I don't know. All right, moving on. Uh, sticking with Google, though, and speaking of uh, Google projects dying predictable deaths, uh, Google is killing Stadia. Stadia was its online uh, gaming streaming service. Uh, it came out a few years ago. Google put some money and energy behind it, but has announced that as of January 2023, uh, Stadia will be shut down. So I went to the spreadsheet, and guess what I found, Drew? In 2019, <laughs> I told you so. Oh, dear. <laughs> You're going to be insufferable. Yeah, just for excuse the rest me of the while show. my ego doesn't fit in my shirt. That's right. Uh, <laughs> Don't break your arm. Network break two two seven. That's it. Let me just get brush those tickets off. Yep. Uh, network break two two seven. I said this is probably going to fail. Now, what I also would probably say with some humility is that the reason I predicted for it is probably half the reason. I said Stadia was going to proceed. It was going to be able to deliver four K high definition games at sixty frames per second, and in the future, eight K high def at 120 frames per second, which would be a remarkable achievement. I mean, can you imagine streaming that? And that's 25 megabits per second download speeds. Mm. That would have to be, that's just for 4K at 60 frames per second. It's, um, you've got to have that consistently at a persistent latency with very little jitter to make that work. And Google made claims about edge nodes. So the idea here was that you would actually pay games in the cloud and that you would then just echo the, the the display or copy the display to the local. So you didn't have to have a games controller. So you, Google didn't have to make an Xbox or a PlayStation to be able to play games. And it would insert itself into the game market via this methodology. Now, I just don't believe that there is a consistent 25 megs of reliable and consistent bandwidth around the world to make that work. Streaming data from Google locations, you know, where the processing's done and then streaming to the client means there's a very small audience and the total addressable market then isn't going to be viable. Does that make sense? Yes, there are some people who've got that sort of internet capacity, but by and large, the majority of the world, and, and we have to think about this as a global phenomenon because these companies are global, they're not mm -hmm. national, are you know, running on 512, 1 meg, 5 megs. They're just not going to get a look in here. Right. So I, I really felt that this was never going to be a scalable business. Now, that said, when I put out some tweets on this, I had some people from who worked on the project come back and say they think Stadia failed for the reason that's more commonly given, which is people are wary of Google's willingness to stick with products. And both customers and game publishers led to being a real problem. In other words, they weren't able to convince game developers to port their titles into the Stadia right. platform and unable to convince customers to go into it. And I went on to Reddit as I'm doing some research for this and went through a bunch of forums and that's exactly true. People were slagging on Stadia saying you can't trust Google to stick with anything. Uh, we talked about that before. So maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe that's half of it. Maybe the other half is that there's just not enough customers. What do you think? 
I, I think Google, uh, from a technical standpoint, could have pulled it off. Uh, they've got the infrastructure. They've got the know-how. Uh, I think mm. it was, though, a case probably of a self-fulfilling prophecy where people don't trust Google to stick with the project. And so mm. if customers don't trust you and if gaming platforms where you need the games, if you're going to be a gaming service, you need the games, don't trust yeah. you either. You've kind of hosed yourself. So, yeah, I think, uh, I think so, yeah. Google dug its own it's, grave. It's interesting in that point of view. I noticed that NVIDIA has a similar product. I know Microsoft's got a similar product. NVIDIA's GeForce Now has actually been receiving adoption. It's suggested that NVIDIA actually has tens of millions of subscribers. Although, if you go searching around in the forums, I would be more conscious of the fact that even though that might <clears> be what <throat> NVIDIA says it's got, I can't believe that. So, for example, there's an article here from PC Mag. That was sent to me by Bert Vanderlingen saying 15 million subscribers in Q1 2022. That's GeForce Now cloud gaming subscriptions. I find that less credible when I go over to Reddit and find that there's a forum there with just 10,000 people in it, you know, 50,000 people. If there's 15 million subscribers, I'm expecting a lot more of them to be involved in a Reddit group associated with that or a Discord <laughs> group, right? So I imagine, and I would not put it past NVIDIA to do a little bit of subscription stuffing, you know. Everybody who's bought a GeForce something, something, something in the last whatever has suddenly been subscribed. Okay, uh -huh. they're subscribers. Uh -huh. You know, sure. would they be doing something like that? I believe they might, you know. Possibly, maybe. Mm. So on the plus side, Google's done two good things here. One is they're refunding all money associated with Stadia to the people. So if you spent a thousand, I was read on it and read it, somebody had spent a thousand dollars in games and he's getting that money back. So that's good news for them. Yeah. Uh, so that's fair. You know, that's help. That's a way to build up trust. Yes. If you ditch your product, don't say people, I got all your money. Ha ha, sucks to be you. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to maintain some credibility. Yes. Um, on the other side, employees were told about the shutdown in a virtual meeting 45 minutes before the public announcement. <laughs> a bit rough. So was the decision short? Did they just turn up for a meeting on Friday and have a meeting. It says like, are we going to shut down Stadia? Yes, we are. Okay. <laughs> Let's have a virtual call in two hours and then public announcements going out this afternoon and we're done. Right. Is yeah, that what we're saying? Rough. I think so. Yeah. Rough. Yeah. Bit rough. Anyway, but we called it, we said Stadia probably wasn't likely to work, but we called it because of bandwidth issues and, and the fact that the internet is an edge technology. And I believe that any attempts to centralize technology in some sort of remote off-prem data center only has a short life before the edge reasserts itself. So that was my theorem back then, and I'm sticking with it today. Yeah, I, honestly, I have to say it was an easy prediction because it's just Google has a bad track record. So <laughs> I'm not patting mm. myself too hard on the back, but yeah. It's... Would have been a fun high school project, though. <laughs> All right, uh, one final Google story. Uh, the company has announced that its Chrome browser will now run its own root store, which serves as a master list of trusted by default root digital certificates issued by certificate authorities. Uh, prior to Chrome version 105, Chrome relied on the root store of its host operating system, so Windows, Mac OS, Linux, etc. Uh, starting with Chrome 105 and going forward, Chrome is going to use its own root store. Why? Just why, right? This is this is literally, again, I think Google's trying to get itself into the conversation about privacy, and it doesn't want privacy to get out of its control. So instead of relying on Apple or Windows or Linux and their CA root stores, Google's going to build its own CA root uh, capabilities inside the Chrome browser. Now, we've talked oh, quite a bit over the last three years about Chrome being a replacement for the desktop in the sense that everything's in the browser. So whatever you do to run the browser, once you're in there, that's so remember they used to have Chrome OS. Mm -hmm. What's actually happening is most of that functionality has been folded into Chrome browser. So that is why Chrome, the browser can talk Bluetooth and can talk to MIDI keyboards in, in musical consoles. <laughs> Nothing to do with the operating system, just straight out of the browser, controller, serial ports, the USB ports. That is not typically what we want. It also means that Chrome is the least private browser out of out of all of it. It just leaks data like a sieve and will always do because it has so many features and functions. If you can fingerprint somebody by polling the MIDI interface and seeing if there's a keyboard attached, then you've got access to data that you don't otherwise want. And so by embedding the CA root into the Chrome browser engine, Google now gets to say, you can't take me out, right? It's not so much that Google wants to be in the conversation about it. They're also saying... If Apple decides to take Google's root certificates out, it can still be working at some level. It's in control of its own future. Does that make sense? Yes, although I will note that one exception is Apple iOS. It sounds like Chrome can't use its own root store on Apple iOS devices that run Chrome because of Apple policies. So there is some tug of war here happening between Apple and Google. Yeah, well, that's exactly why. Apple wants to control <laughs> right. the root to be able to Everybody say, what are control. you doing on my... 
Yes. Yeah, which is which leads into the policy that Apple has, which is we do generally care about privacy and user security far more than we've ever seen from Google, right? So I would generally say that's exactly why they're doing it. It's consistent with that. And the question here, of course, is if you're an enterprise administrator, you'll be beating yourself over the head because the number of CA root stores you've got to control if you're using the Chrome browser suddenly doubled mm-hmm. because now you have one in every operating system and another one in the Chrome browser. My advice to you is to probably consider ditching the Chrome browser so you've got less overhead to administration because Apple, Safari, Firefox, and Edge have substantial privacy controls and they use the operating system CA, which is probably better for your business. Keep in mind that Google also does things like it still supports third-party cookies. So people are still able to fingerprint your users inside of your corporation by placing third-party cookies. It leaks data. Um, companies use it to collect data on potential customers. They feed it into their sales systems. Google's trying various ways to make sure that its ad business is not impacted by privacy moves. Uh-huh. It tried to get Flock going. It's now got a successor technology. It's refused to remove third-party cookies, which is absolutely the most egregious part. You go to a website, anybody can place a cookie. A website can place a cookie for you know, Yandex in Russia, and you know nothing about it. And Chrome is the only browser that does that today. So I'm not a fan of this. I understand why Google's doing it. Follow the money, follow the control. But I think this is, again, about politics. Google wants to be in control of its destiny, but it also wants to be involved in any political or government or societal conversation about who gets to see what and when. Makes sense. All right, uh, links in the show notes if you want to read up more about it. We'll move on. Uh, Sales of firewalls rose 14% in the second quarter of 2022 compared to last year, according to research from the Dill Oro Group. Total quarterly revenue neared $3 billion. Hardware firewalls saw revenue increase by 12%, and Dill Oro says that number would have been higher without supply chain constraints. Uh, Virtual firewall sales jumped by 61% year-over-year in Q2. Okay, so the thing that jumped out at me at this, Drew, this is not what I was expecting to hear. And I wanted, I sort of wanted to poke at it. And then I realized that this is by revenue. So mm-hmm. the end, if you can't ship firewalls, how do you get 14% growth? And the answer <laughs> is you increase the price for the ones that you can get. And <laughs> we've talked quite a bit over the last year about vendors increasing prices by 30 to 40% and claiming, you know, stock shortages or hard to deliver or whatever it is. Um, even though, you know, they, they, they say they can't get chips, they can't get supply or freighting is expensive. Any excuse to raise the price is my general view. I do believe vendors had some sort of price increases, but passing on, you know, m- much larger price increases is a good way to improve your profit margin. And we've certainly seen that public listed vendors have all listed extremely, you know, r- dramatically increased profits, even when they haven't even shipped anything, <laughs> if you believe them. So I think, you know, if you've got a revenue increase of 14% on constrained supply, that just reflects the increased price of firewalls. You should probably try and delay buying firewalls until the prices come down again, right? Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you might guess, the top three vendors, according to Delora, are Cisco, Fortinet, and Palo Alto, not in ranked order, just alphabetical order. Uh, among them, mm-hmm. they control more than 50% of market revenue. And one key point that I saw, this is just a pricey. We don't get the whole report, so we have to guess a lot of things here, so don't quote us. But one thing I noted is that uh, hardware firewall revenue accelerated 12% year-on-year, but was outpaced by solid demand for virtual firewalls that saw a 61% year-on-year increase. Yep. So people are switching to virtual firewalls. Why? Because they can't get hardware firewalls or because they want virtual firewalls? Hard to know without reading the rest of the report. Yeah, curious if that's uh, tracking with more adoption of public cloud and wanting to have some kind of control mechanism in the cloud or elsewhere. Uh, I I believe this report is not talking is not including, uh, you know, firewall licenses attached to SASE or SSE sales. So curious where those <laughs> virtual firewalls are. some definition of firewall. Right. <laughs> <laughs> there is no definition of firewall, so... Right. uh, Moving on, the United Nations has elected a new Secretary General of the International Telecommunication Union, or ITU. The ITU is the main technology governing body in the United Nations. And and why should you care? Well, you should, because in a weird sort of a way, it actually controls a lot of the things we do. So uh, the UN actually sets a lot of standards in parallel to the ITF. But by and large, the standards that it promotes are global standards. So things like satellite permissions and satellite orbits and global spectrum allocation, you know, little things that, you know, don't really bother us, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and most of them in- involve really deep arcane engineering topics and debates. And, and you know, at the end of the day, when you get into it, most of the technology we use in the internet or in private enterprise networking is actually pretty low tech. Most of it's 30 year old, like the ethernet standard is the dumbest thing that we could possibly use for a frame format, way less complicated and less sophisticated than how we communicate with satellites in orbit and stuff like that. 
And it's it's real science. The real science happens in signal propagation. And there's real business here when and you know, the UN decides who gets what and what patents are consumed inside of certain standards. I think it's sort of a, a case in point of bike shedding. Many of us don't actually understand what happens behind the scenes. We understand BGP, so we get all peeved about the ITF. But we run around believing that BGP actually matters, but what we're ignoring is that there's deep science and deep, uh, you know, serious issues happening. You know, the high-rise building right next to it, and you don't worry about that because you don't understand how that works. That's not your thing. So um, I think that's one part of it, and that's why I try and focus on what the ITU is doing as part of the UN, and it's very political in there. And I think the the interesting part here is that originally there was a Russian person uh, up being voted in here mm-hmm. or was expected to get the role. And when the election actually happened, a U.S. representative ultimately won with 139 to 29 of the uh, of votes. And I think Russia is paying a price for the Ukraine war here and China's going with it. Both Russia and China have made strong moves in the ITU over the last five years to control internet technology using the ITU standards. That is by promoting you know, researchers and standards that head towards a centrally controlled network. Well, I've talked about the IPv4+, which is the Chinese internet, the IPv6+, which is extensions to IPv6 that China wants to implement so that you can have a centrally controlled internet. You can control who accesses it, and you can also control or steer the flows where you want them. Both Russia and China have been building great firewalls. Obviously, China has theirs, but Russia has been was before the war attempting to build its own control. You know, f- you know, control the network flows through points where it could monitor all of the traffic. And I think this is a setback for Russia and China here globally that we aren't necessarily so. As it says here, Ms. Bogdan Martin beat her Russian rival Rashid Ismailov by 139 votes to 25. Interesting thing to talk about. Please contact me in the follow-up if you want to argue with me about it, I suppose. Yeah, packetpushers.net have you to argue with us about anything. Mm. <laughs> I love arguing sometimes. And <laughs> <laughs> a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, IP Fabric. IP Fabric is the industry leader in network assurance. The company is growing its solutions architects team, and they are ready and waiting to guide you through a tailored technical demonstration of IP Fabric and everything it can do for you from network visualization to topology to troubleshooting and more. Why take a tour with these solution architects? Because they've been where you are. They're the recipients of the 2 a.m. phone calls from the data center, the ones who must prove the innocence of the network when everyone else is too ready to blame it, the ones who maintain network SLAs while trying to get on with continuously evolving network operations. That's why they're so excited to show you what IP Fabric can do for your network operations and are happy to help you solve your network issues. So go on and get a demo and see how IP Fabric can help with your network operations. Go to ipfabric.io slash packetpushersdemo. That's all one word ipfabric.io slash packet pushers demo. We thank IP Fabric for being a sponsor. I like this product. It's it's a step up from monitoring into the visibility stakes. And of course, they've added to it. So they're actually now much more able to help you with your ops. So they're starting to get into the AI ops space where they say, oh, we know what that is. This is what you need to do to fix it. They don't do it. You know, it's not an automated reconfiguration, but it is in that sort of space. And uh, it could be worth a look if you're trying to go home on time and not be woken up at three o'clock in the morning. And it's always better to get a demo from someone who knows what they're talking about. Yeah. The demos help because yep. it gets you, you have to give it your attention. You don't have to sit there and you look like you're doing something. So people are trying to bother you at your desk. I just have to leave you alone while you're doing that. <laughs> An interesting way to not frame that's it. ever happened to me. <laughs> no, never. We're always busy. Legitimately yeah, busy. Right. Hmm. All right, uh, back to the news. Uh, focusing on Starlink, there's more detail about the company's recently launched maritime service. We had covered a couple of weeks ago that they were launching a service uh, for the maritime industry. There wasn't a lot of detail, but they've come out with some more specs. Yeah, there was uh, a lot of people who are uh, into boats uh, had been very interested in the leaks and rumors around a Starlink maritime or Starlink boating type capability, which is quite different to what you would do on land. And in this case, uh, the maritime service is not what we were hoping for, or not what those people were hoping for, which is that it is a $10,000 to start, and I believe it to be a $10,000 a month minimum, probably on a uh, substantially more. And the minimum number of antennas that you buy is two. So you're probably talking something in the order of a half a million to a million a year to get internet access, and probably more here. Um, I think this is important in several different ways. Uh, If you're going to build an antenna and put it on top of a cruise ship it's got to be windproof hurricane proof it's got to move around on the waves true right mm-hmm. if you can right. imagine yep and and these tanners are self-focusing so it has to have gears and motors inside it that are actually have to be rated to outdoor use and right. very heavy duty use yep um 
one of the things that we heard about in Ukraine is that they're using the the Starlink satellites because they drive to a location, set it up, and then pack it up and run away and move somewhere else. Apparently, the gears inside actually wear out because they're just plastic and just not designed for a high high utilization. They're not designed to move and reposition constantly. Uh-huh. Apparently, the Ukrainians have just making their own gears or repurposing metal gears. <laughs> really stress testing these devices, yes. And uh, yeah, yeah. probably they weren't rated for battlefield use, so yeah. No, well, they're not rated to that sort of duty cycle. So fair enough from both sides of the, yeah. you know, the debate. But anyway, so in this case, it's probably not unreasonable to spend big money on the antenna and the base station because the mechanical design has to be significantly enhanced. And, you know, if you're trying to run it in high heavy winds, heavy seas and hurricanes while traffic, you know, tracking har- uh, satellites overhead, that's really... Quite an achievement, right? right? Let's let's just give that some credibility. Yeah. Um, but equally, I think the performance of this will be good because the ships are often in in spaces on the ocean where there's no other users, and so a Starlink is actually getting free money. You wouldn't normally make any money out of the ocean, and now you can in their situation. Mm-hmm. So, and a lot of these cruise ships will pay almost anything to have decent internet because up until now they've only had very poor satellite options, you know, linked to an overhead satellite with a 10-foot dish and, you know, not exactly weatherproof. And if the boat's bouncing up and down, probably not able to focus on the satellite very well, et cetera, et cetera. So this could be a real step forward for cruise ships in terms of modernizing the customer experience. So I expect there's a queue here. But uh, your normal people who wanted to put Starlink on top of a boat and maybe sail around the Mediterranean in the summer, a little bit disappointed. I mean, if you're a super yacht owner... Uh, you know, twenty grand for the hardware and ten grand a year is probably a drop in the super yacht cost bucket. Uh, but for your, your weekend <laughs> yeah. voter, maybe it's a little, it's yeah. a little too steep. Maybe you start with the high spenders and you move your way down the right. market because exactly. up until now, Starlink started at the bottom and moved up. Right. So maybe this is a, this is attacking it from a different direction. Different but also, direction, you know, mm, we talked about the slowing performance of Starlink, uh, and there was another report came out this week from Ookla saying that Starlink slowed again, and that other there is room for other. S- satellite companies to merge but in this case i think you know the maritime's going to work just fine yeah uh moving on forbes magazine says the wireless and crypto startup helium which promised shared wealth for every user who brought a who bought a helium hotspot has primarily enriched investors and company insiders helium's pitch was to create a low power wireless wan that would provide connectivity for iot devices so small things like pet trackers uh, connected scooters, that kind of thing. And to build that network, they needed people to buy $500 hotspots that would provide network coverage. And the incentive for someone to run a hotspot was that it would also help mine helium tokens, giving everyone who, who participated an opportunity to cash in on the crypto craze. Uh, Forbes has done some digging and reports that more than a quarter of all the crypto coins mined are actually owned by just a few dozen insiders. Uh, at the meantime, the company has sold $500 million worth of hotspots uh, without enriching uh, this this public network of people. Oh, this is this is delightful. Now, <laughs> uh, can I be smug again here? Because we talked about this in Network Break 240. And <laughs> I yes. think we actually called it a pyramid scheme. Is that what you told me when you did the back research? I went and listened and we, we didn't say, we, we said it had a whiff of a pyramid scheme. Uh, so, mm. you know, trying to, 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 to cover our bases a little bit. But yes, it does sound like uh, if you got in early, you did well. If you got in late, not so much. I'm going to take it. I got it right. I'm going to take a hundred point. I'm going to take a hundred percent of that. Hit the check. Mark. Why not? Go ahead. Uh, so helium is an over the top network for IOT devices. The idea was that it would use LP WAN, one of the very low powered technology to track a pet, track an IOT device. And then of course, Amazon came along with ring. Apple came along with its, you know, find my device stuff and kind of made helium more than a little bit redundant. Um, and it also turns out that Helium was, like most crypto schemes, because it rewarded early starters in the market, uh, a lot of the people who actually worked for the company went out and bought a hundred of these devices, put them in a closet, uh, claimed that their devices were actually, like the idea was that if the devices were all in one place, they wouldn't generate so many crypto tokens, mm-hmm. encourage people to disperse the Helium you know, right. base station. And but these they just people basically with lied. the location element and essentially lied about where they were. So yeah. Yeah. And at one stage the helium crypto was worth about 250 million. It's now down to about 23 million. And it turns out that basically something like 50 to 70% of all the crypto tokens belong to about a dozen people who all mysteriously seem to be employees of the company, including the founder of the company, et cetera, et cetera. And they're sort of making these blithe crypto statements like, oh, that's just how it works. That's the way it's designed to work. And Blah, blah. <laughs> the challenge here is now is that if you've actually got a helium base station in play, you actually can't make enough money to bother running one. And that 
heralds the end of the Helium project as such. It was meant to be a community network and people who have hotspots are now turning them off because the cost of the electricity is now, you're not even getting money back for that, mainly because nobody's buying Helium tokens. <coughs> so if you run a get which quick scheme and then you stop bothering to generate demand for your network, like, through, you know, what are you going to do that's going to buy, make you go out and buy Helium tokens so that you can connect your IoT strategy to the network, the Helium network? Right. It, it was initially pitched as we're trying to build a, a low power WAN network and we're using crypto as an incentive when it really turns out that they were just building a crypto scheme and disguising yeah. it as we're building a network. So I actually, I actually suspect they didn't have those motives, but when the Gretwich quick stuff came around, I imagine that it was pretty hard to ignore that. You know, mm -hmm. um, I'm sort of a little sympathetic in that sense, but they should have also been out there generating demand for their crypto. If you've mm -hmm. got a crypto, you want people to use your tokens because you've got an over the top network. What are you doing to generate demand? You know, and putting trackers on dog collars is not it, right? That's not worth, you know, $10 a month or $20 a month or whatever it is. Right. And, and now you've got a problem where who wants to put up a new node when you know that somebody else has got all the tokens and there's no demand for them. If so, you know, if there was a company that came on and said, I'm going to establish my, I don't know, key tracking solution, but it's going to be using the Helium network and I'll buy the Helium token so that my key, you know, my key trackers can. That, that's the thing. It sounds the like they didn't do a lot of work to develop uh, applications and users who wanted to adopt the network itself yes. that they were building. So mm. uh, then like, well, what's the point? So and the point where I guess <laughs> and because they also, that's right. And now because they overmined the tokens in the early days, somebody's got all the captured value. Now there's no way yes. out of this, of course, because somebody's got all the tokens and they're not going to let you refork, going to fork the blockchain into some workable use case because they don't want to see their 20, 50, 60 million dollars worth of to crypto tokens disappear. You know, who wants to give up their money to see it work? Well, you just introduce so, a whole brand new coin and then you start over and hey, everybody's happy. At least the first <laughs> 50 people are happy. Interesting one. Anyway, I think anything that's got crypto in it by this point is inherently going to be scammed somehow because there's just so many scammers in the space, not because it's inherently bad, but just because people um, instantly see opportunities for it to be scammed. And the privilege of you know being an early entrant, therefore you're rewarded, is instantly turned into abused abusive position and, and there's no winners. So I'm very doubtful. Uh, as I said, I think back in that show, because I'm recalling more and more of it as we talk, the, the ideas are solid. The logic is solid. I think the execution isn't going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. They. It sounds like they should have done more work to actually demonstrate the value of the, the network itself to third parties who would bring IoT devices mm. onto that network. And then maybe, you know, they would have actually built an ecosystem. Yeah. I mean, the logic is fine. You've got to get hotspots. You've got to have a network. But then again, as I said, telcos can build one easily enough. Right. Or And as we have now, satellites. You know, if you're going to build an IoT network at now, I would just connect straight to the. I'd be talking, looking at what Apple's doing with their mobile phones, or what Starlink announced with T-Mobile a couple of you know in the last four weeks. Well, and going like that's it. Did you notice that they are uh, launching a new service based on five G? They're they're trying it again, but this time slapping five G on it. So no, I would I wouldn't <laughs> trust the people involved. I'm not going to talk get, about them get it on the ground I'm, floor. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, I just want to lift to the top, Drew, so I can get off. Yeah. <laughs> Throw myself off the top. <laughs> <laughs> we have the link in the show notes if you want to read it. It's a really good story. Check it out. Uh, we'll also drop in the link to our uh, discussion about for Forbes, 2019. Yeah, really good. Yeah, they yeah I don't it well. often get good stuff off Forbes. Very rare. Very rare. Uh, we're going to wrap up with a surfing dog story. Anchor, they make charging cables for mobile devices and consumer electronics. They're incorporating plant-based materials into their cables to reduce the amount of plastic required. The company says the outer sheath of a new line of USB charging cables uses, quote, 40% plant-based materials like corn and sugar cane. Yeah, I, Anchor is a well-known maker of consumer electronics and consumer and cables, particularly. They have been a long-time maker of um, Apple cables and they managed to break away from just being a Chinese manufacturer to being a, an established brand. They've heavily invested in a brand. In this case, they're announcing bio-based cables where the outer sheet uses 40% plant-based materials. Now, you could have an argument, Drew, I think, about whether turning corn and sugarcane into plastic is a great idea. And there are various environmental debates that uh, so doing actually burns more energy and it's just a sop to society. I'm not qualified to make those make those decisions yet, but I think this is something. If if this product takes off, could we see some more environmental cabling instead of just the usual 
toxic copper fiber wrap it in plastic and whatever and just use tons and tons and tons of this stuff are we actually seeing something along this line where there's something we can actually choose to do to build better data centers that are good for the environment perhaps yeah, Anchor cites statistics saying that 9,000 tons of plastic are used every year just to make USB cables. Uh, and we know mm -hmm. that most of that probably ends up in a landfill. So if 622 million USB cables <laughs> used by people around the world, it's like, oh, wow. Sir. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, I'm always skeptical about companies doing greenwashing. Uh, and you're mm. right that if the energy that goes into producing these substitutes, uh, you know, might be a net zero in terms of actual carbon emissions. But you know, sometimes you need to have those startup costs to actually make something scalable. Yeah. It makes sense to do it in the consumer market because consumers will choose right. products. If I did this in the corporate market and said you can buy environmentally friendly patch leads for your data center, then, you know, <laughs> that's probably not going to happen. Probably, probably people not. are going to say, no, cheapest price, that's what we want, whatever. Yes. So, but I also think that we probably have more cabling spent allocated to the consumer market than we do to the high entire corporate market. So maybe this gets to critical mass and maybe we'll see an overflow. Anyway, interesting point of view. I didn't consider that plastics around cabling could be made out of bioproducts, you know, some sort of organic product treated to become a plastic sheath. And so maybe there's some hope for us yet. Maybe. Uh, yeah, we aren't quite at the state of compostable USB charging cables yet, but uh, maybe something to shoot for. Uh, oh, that's an idea. We should do that. <laughs> <laughs> Quick, to the patent office. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> All right, link in the show notes if you want to check it out. Uh, stay tuned for our sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Juniper Networks. We're going to be talking about their Juniper SD-WAN that's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we are diving into Juniper's Session Smart SD-WAN with Kevin Klett, VP of Product Management. Now, Session Smart is a dramatically different approach to SD-WAN when you consider how IPsec or TLS or other tunneling protocols. And the advantage of Session Smart is it can handle a wider range of design choices while incurring less state in network devices, less overhead and greater performance. And there's various different features that we're going to talk about here today. And from a customer point of view, this means flexible designs, more for less, you can scale it up or use less resources, or you get to be more flexible around the business changes. It's been around for quite a long time. The, the technology behind Session Smart has actually been in the market for about 10 years. It was recently acquired by Juniper as it's part of its 128T acquisition. So I'll start the discussion with an overview on Juniper Smart, Session Smart, and then we'll look deeper into what this means in the real world. Kevin, uh, for those who don't know, what is Juniper Session Smart? Let's kick that off with some just some basic stuff because that's the key differentiator, right? Oh, absolutely. And I, I think from a from a, a, a network routing and SD-WAN perspective, Session Smart, you know, fundamentally changed in the way in which we think about and build routers for SD-WAN. You know, for the last say, you know, 20 plus years, we've been really relying upon traditional, you know, stateless routing with IPsec tunnels and overlays that really kind of restricted our innovation into a world of VPNs. And as we go into cloud, we go into mobility, we look at, you know, sort of the ever changing, you know, um, landscape of applications and services that we consume, nothing of it screams static overlay, it screams dynamic, it screams like we need to optimize across networks. Mm. And more and more as we go from, you know, the early days of SD-WAN, which was really about, you know, taking traffic off your MPLS <laughs> and reducing costs, which is really exciting, but really what but folks really are getting out of this is a fundamentally new way of looking at routing that delivers that kind of cloud-based flexibility. At the same time, scalable security in a way that tunneling never got you to accomplish, right? Mm -hmm. And the third thing is that 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 combination of the session smart, which is the elimination of tunnels, it's a session stateful routing end-to-end -end mm -hmm. with visibility into applications end-to-end -end, combined with the artificial intelligence or that AI-driven cloud-delivered MIST-based capabilities giving you that client-to-cloud experience, you know, with Session Smart. Yeah. So Session Smart actually delivers upon that user experience, not only for the yeah. people like you and me who are getting better quality of service, but you know, for the for the deliverer of the service or the operators <laughs> who are getting much simpler. Yeah, the um, session smart idea is actually really, I think it's important to just expand on this for a little bit, if I may, because yeah. it's this idea that if I know exactly where the source is and I know exactly where the <clears> destination <throat> is, I don't need to create a tunnel in the traditional way. I don't need these untrusted assumptions that uh, that IPSEC and TLS do. They they assume that you are untrusted and they do a crypto 
session establishment, where you don't need to do an asymmetric handshake if you absolutely have a certainty that the source and the destination are unique. Now, that's the fundamental idea behind the session smart, isn't it? Well, yeah, it's about identifying that session, not only in terms of its source and destination, but like what are the services and what's the minimum mm -hmm. SLA associated with that service end to end. And then without that, you know, encumbrance of those, you know, clunky tunnels, you yeah. now have that stateful management of that session based on knowledge of the source and destination, you know, the application that's that's being delivered and what your what your SLA expectations are. So you can make on the fly session by session decisions based mm -hmm. on how you route, whether you route, you yeah. know, sort of breakout routing and so forth. And I sometimes think of a session, the session smart as like flow tracking. That's not exactly true because it's a bit more it's a bit less granular than that but it's like i know these flows are going to come from here to here therefore there's things that i can do with an sdn you know with a centralized controller which means i can avoid the overheads of ipsec and tls and i can also avoid the tr the limitations of point to point tunneling technologies and get much more i can start to approach a mesh or partial mesh with a lot less state and a lot less overhead is that fair yeah Absolutely. Mm. Instead of having these, you know, elephant flows of, of tunnels that are based on static policies, mm. you can actually make those decisions dynamically based on policy that's delivered from the cloud mm. and distributed instantaneously over every part of the network. So the session smarts, not only the way in which we handle the sessions, but it's the fact that we've got a global policy database that knows about the applications and services, where they reside, you know, what yeah. are the multiple options you've got. You know, look at AWS, for example. It's not just one thing. It's many AWS zones. You know, yeah. So the network has to be much more intelligent, but with, with the tunnel-based technology, you're encumbered or you're just restricted by that sort of static routing, which is yeah. really not sure. And static and that fundamental staticness or that lack of flexibility is inherent to tunnel technologies. Whereas sure session is. smart moves away. But the interesting the other part about session smart, and I want to just go on with this a little bit, is that it's naturally software focused. It can't work unless you have a controller. Whereas IPSEC was sort of like, oh, let's strap a controller on the top and call it SD1. <laughs> you know, let's take BGP <laughs> and add some extended families to it. And we, we've got an SD1. Yeah. You know, it was kind of like that, wasn't it? But, they, but you really, yeah. the 128T people really rethought this as a different sort of a thing. Well, yeah. I mean, in the old world, you had everything was static. You, you would set yeah. it and leave it. You had IPSEC tunnels. And let's not even like get going about um, um, ACLs and the challenges yeah. ACLs yeah. and ACL blow. Those are very static and old world technologies. But you're right. You know, it needs to be software defined. You need that centralized orchestration to be able to manage that user experience and the expectations. And then at the at the execution level, as actually making sure your network's delivering on the service, you know, experiences that you've set from know, user perspective. And so, yes, you're right. It is inherently a software-based network. And also mm. the benefit of that is, is it takes the network anywhere software can go into the mm. cloud, into data centers, you know, into sort of unique, you know, areas, IOT, for example. Into VMs, um, into containers. Right, into you VMs, can actually, this, that's really unusual, but this is another unusual feature that when I looked it up is you can actually do this in a VM or in a, in a container. If you want to make this, it, that's just fine. Off yeah, you go. Absolutely. I don't yeah, need to absolutely. do so. I don't have to need to spin up an operating system and then a virtual appliance and then a, you know, and then create an IPSEC tunnel. It's just like, oh no, just add the, you know, it's fine. Just add the app. Yep. Yep. And that means that you can extend that fabric, you know, that secure, dynamic, you know, uh, service based fabric all the way into the cloud, whenever you need to mm -hmm. be. So Other you don't need a cloud routing or a cloud networking, perhaps for, not maybe you still do, but for, for many use cases, this would be enough for cloud networking for many companies. So very much so, very okay. much so. So let's talk about how, obviously I talked about the software capability and how it's sort of inherently API, you know, usual buzzword driven. Does that lean into the Juniper Mist story? Because one of the key there is that Juniper likes to talk about Mist and AI ops everywhere. I'm guessing you want to tell people that Mist is, as, you know, it seems well, like every time we talk to Juniper, <laughs> Mist is a part of it, but it makes uh, sense well, still, right? So, you know, so yeah, I mean, I, 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 um, Manage this product as part of the 128 technology acquisition, for which Juniper, you know, used to bring in this technology. And I have to tell you, is it's it's a marriage made in heaven between this type of network control and this experience-first networking with the Mist AI. Um, in the Mist cloud and the Marvis, you know, virtual network assistant, you know, in our opinion, is a game changer mm. because it's one thing to deliver on the network to fulfill that user experience from the network, but how do you manage it? How do you monitor it? Mm. How do you like do anomaly detection? How do you ensure that that user experience is expressed in ways that your your operators can really understand? 
And then how do you combine that? It's just a big, the, the magic, which is it's not just about the routing, it's also about the wireless and the wired infrastructure. And so how do you bring all of those elements of that user experience together under one cloud? Yeah. And then make it, you know, I'm from Boston, so I'll say make it wicked smart. And, you know, what that means is that, you know, that the, the <laughs> MIST, you know, and the AI engine is constantly looking at, you know, anomalies in the network. And the result is, is that our customers are experiencing you know, 80, 90% reduction in trouble tickets. They're, yeah. they're reducing their mean time to repair dramatically. And that just translates to bottom line costs. Now that applies to the session smart technology because there's not a lot of mistakes. It seems to me like there's not a, not a lot of mistakes you can make with configuring it. Or is that just my na- naivete, if you like? <laughs> well, you know, I, I think that the, the part of the benefit of having this sort of missed AI engine is just to simplify matters quite mm. a bit. So like you don't have the fat finger, like, you know, typing keys on a keyboard through a telnet session on a router. Mm. I mean, this is a well-orchestrated policy-driven network. And when things do go awry for whatever reason, because sometimes they do, mm. how do you quickly identify what those problems are in advance of your customers experiencing the impact? Is is this integrated into the Marvis conversational interface? Because we've talked to other products and they've got the conversational interface. So you could actually have like your help desk doing tier zero saying, asking the AI conversationally, you know, is my branch network up? And if it comes back and says, yes, it's not your, <laughs> do you know, is that sort of thing that we're talking about? Yeah, with the, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. The conversational interface really brings it down to you know, that level of simplicity. What's going on with my Boston location, right? Hmm. And so instantly you can get so telemetry in terms of anything that could potentially be impacting your user's experience. I have to say that the AI uh, and MIST, you know, it, it it it's very different than anything I had experienced previously in terms of when people think about network management, they think about SNMP, they think about telemetry, they think of reporting. That's all well and good, but this is really a step way beyond that because mm. it's really, you know, like giving the operator, you know, you know, simple um, in Marvis, the the virtual network network assistant provides what we call Marvis actions, and the mm. Marvis actions are. You know, things that your operator could do or change or modify that could potentially be impacting user experience. And can so I'm thinking exactly- like an SD-WAN site that's got like an MPLS and an internet connection, and you could say, uh, tell it to just switch over to the internet connection because the MPLS is a problem, for example. Oh, that's a configuration example, but I think yep. the first step is to understand, hey, not so much is it, is it your MPLS link is that having a problem, is that right. how many users at that location are suffering from bad quality? Okay. Or, or they can't connect. So to even more or, user, much more help desk centric than I would have thought. Then very much about the user experience. We talk about that yeah. client to cloud user experience, and we we mean it. It's not just about delivering it, but when it, uh, things occur. I mean, it could be a a bad cable. Believe it or not, it's like one of the most like needle in the haystack problems in networks. And, mm-hmm. and you know, frankly, you know, we crack the code and how to identify that. So we mm-hmm. dramatically reducing the time to understand what these problems are, and then. You know, be able to provide visibility into that that the user SLA, right? mm. not just from the WAN perspective, but all the way from the time they connect to the network over their Wi-Fi, with the uh, missed APs through switching, all the way through you know the cloud application services that they're consuming. So there's a lot of sort of misconceptions about AI and SD WAN. I think Juniper might be the first here putting the mist into the SD WAN. I know lots of other vendors are racing or talking about AI ops in the WAN SD WAN, but you're really there first, I think. Yes, yes, I believe so. And this is really, you know, part of the reason why Juniper acquired the technology, the session smart mm. technology. Because to your point earlier, you know, you really do need to have a software-centric view of the world and a, yeah. and a, and a network that can really d- dynamically and quickly apply policies. And thirdly, get that telemetry, that rich telemetry that you need, that AI yeah. just needs to consume data. And without that session-based orientation, you don't get it. You don't get the telemetry. You have to add it on later. You have to add on some sort of flow collector or inspection engine and then forward the data off. But this was always part of the 128T session smart capabilities to start. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that makes more sense. Okay. So you mentioned full stack earlier. I think we sort of hinted at it. Why? What do we mean by full stack? Well, with full stack. So um, as you know, uh, Juniper Networks offers a full you know, wired wireless and WAN solution for enterprises and service providers and MSPs. And that means like the missed access points, the missed EX family or the Juniper EX family of, of switches, you know, and now the 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 session smart SD-WAN. All three elements of these are under the missed umbrella, which mm-hmm. means that when you're deploying, whether you deploy one or all elements of that network infrastructure, 
um, your visibility now is down to the individual the point in time they connect to the network. Mm-hmm. You know, it could be location-based service-related issues within the enterprise. There could be switching challenges. I mean, things that would, you know, o- often for operators, you know, takes days or weeks to resolve issues. You know, we now get that, not only the management, that day zero and day one capability set across the wired wireless and WAM, but then, you know, as we said earlier, that day two sort of yeah. visibility and, you know, operations. So what you're sort of saying there is that now you've got AI ops in the SD-WAN and of course it started in the wireless and then it went to the campus. So you're really sort of saying you're yep. covering more and more of the networking and, you know, I believe AI ops is coming to the Appstra technology in the data center. But I also wanted to sort of highlight something I don't think Juniper makes enough of is that this also works on white box. There's various mm-hmm. white box solutions that you can get. So if you don't want to use the the hardware that Juniper's suggesting to you, you can go and choose from various approved white boxes and it can operate that way as well, which is a flexibility not, you don't often see, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. yeah both, a, both a great flexibility, a, a challenge to manage, but, you know, we've been very successful at managing and building and managing an ecosystem of partnerships. And so, right. you know, whether it be, say, for a managed service provider who wants to brand their own hardware to, you know, bespoke uh, requirements, you know, we've seen some things uh, internationally within, you know, ruggedized environments and, and very specific applications. So we can very quickly bring solutions to market with our partners, third party that, you know, wouldn't normally be sitting on the shelf at, you know, Juniper or anybody for that matter. Mm. Yeah. And as the supply chain problems we've had, which seem to be easing, <laughs> but as it highlighted, maybe that's not a bad idea if you want to have, you know, if you're really moving at speed. Yep. I guess one question Absolutely. is in the back of my mind is what's next? There's a few pieces missing. We talked a lot about SD-WAN, about how it's good for connectivity, but we've seen the industry moving much more towards security. And you haven't mentioned that. Is that, I guess that's coming, is it? Oh, no, it's here. It's here. Right. So, you know, we, we've got a very, you know, sort of, a dynamic approach to security, both on-premise within the session smart networking. And so we've just, for example, integrated the best of Juniper, you know, uh, security technology with the session smart routing to offer, you know, uh, on-premise, mm. you know, advanced level, like L5 security capabilities, like, you know, URL um, uh, filtering or IDP uh, and others. Mm. That combined with the integration, not only with, you know, SSE or SASE cloud-based security, both Juniper's SSE and third parties like Zscaler round out that solution so that from a SASE perspective, and that seems to be a buzzword right these days. Yeah. Um, you know, well, once, you, once you've done the connectivity, you're kind of like, uh, this isn't enough, right? And, right. And the, and the weird part about it is that actually adding security to SD-WAN isn't all that complex. And so everybody sort of rushed into it and it's become... It's become the norm, I think, that SASE is now, sure. I want my SD-WAN with security. I don't want to have them separated. Yeah. Yes, mm. absolutely. And so, and, and but the thing is, there's there's no one size fits all rule, you know, between, mm. say, skinny branch and fat branch or like full, full security stacks um, premise versus in the cloud. And so at Juniper with the SSR, we've invested in both. So whether whether you're, you know, uh, thick branch, enter, enterprise, secure, heavy um, or cloud-based, we've got a solution for both. Well, that's about all that we have time for today. Thanks very much for Kevin to coming on the show to talk to us. And thanks to Juniper for sponsoring today's show. Without them, we wouldn't be here and able to bring this to you. If you want more information, head on over to juniper.net and do a search for Juniper SD-WAN driven by Mist AI, which is where you can find out more. Or just do a general search for Juniper's Smart Session. If you want to understand the differences, like how different 128T is, say, to other SD-WAN approaches, have a look at Session Smart and get your get your brain tingling about and, and think about how that is a much better way to integrate with software or potentially there's an edge. Well, as always, you can find many more fine free technical podcasts along with our website at packetpushes.net. The show notes will be there for this podcast. Just go and search up the, the, the number and you'll see the notes and the links away. You can also follow us on Twitter as at Packet Pushes. Find us on LinkedIn and like us on your favorite social media. And last but never ever least, remember that too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>